Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at the COP28 conference that just recently concluded in Dubai. My guest today is an expert on this conference since he attended it. Felix Dodds is Director of the Multilateral Affairs of the Rob and Melanie Walton Sustainability Solutions Service at Arizona State University. He's also an adjunct professor in environmental sciences and engineering at the University of North Carolina. And he is an associate fellow at the TELUS Institute in Boston, as well as being for the city of Bonn, Germany, an international ambassador. His two most recently co-authored books are Heroes, and Environmental Diplomacy Profiles in Courage, and Tomorrow's People and New Technology Changing How We Live Our Lives. Felix Dodds, welcome back to Global Connections Television. It's my pleasure, Bill. Always good to be here with you. I appreciate you being with me today. We're going to get into the COP Conference of Parties 28, COP 28, in just a minute. But let's do a little lead up to it and talk about the background how did we get this far with these United Nations conferences? And I guess it really started back around 1979 with the first World Climate Conference. Is that correct? Well, a little bit yeah. earlier, a little bit earlier. So um, the first time that the UN uh, came up with some action on uh, climate change was actually the 72 um, the first UN conference on the human environment, where uh, in the outcome document, it um, recognized that they needed to address the scientific uh, evidence that climate change was happening. So with the establishment of UNEP uh, as the UN's environment agency at the time, uh, it was kind of tasked with collecting together the best science in the early 70s. But you're right, the the uh, first major attempt to bring that science together was at the 1979 First World Climate Conference. And I think um, the World uh, Meteorological Organization did a really good job there. And then, of course, um, it um, helped to establish the, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which was ultimately set up, I think, in 88. And then the second World Climate Conference, which was held in 1990, um, the IPCC produced its first report for. And so it set the scene to the 92 Earth Summit when the Framework Convention was signed. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has really done a remarkable job in producing some very valuable studies on the deterioration of our planet, to be quite honest. Well, before we go too far, I want to be sure and mention to our viewers that they can find more information at www.felixdodds.net. 
So you can tap into that and get more articles and also his other books too that we didn't talk about today. Well, let's jump right into it. You were at the COP28 in Dubai. What were the major goals prior to the conference and what are some of them that came out of the conference? Well, so um, I guess the the important thing to realize in the context of these UN framework convention meetings, because they happen every year, and there's a two-week preparatory meeting that happens in Bonn in June, is they have, after the Paris Agreement, set a really quite detailed um, agenda of what they want to address each year. Sometimes uh, you have uh, surprises. So in Sharm el-Sheikh the previous year, in COP27, um, we had an agreement to establish the loss and damage fund. Well, that wasn't expected to happen. And so it was a bit of a shock. And what happened in the process leading up to um, COP28 in Dubai was they set up what's called a transitional committee, which put forward a set of recommendations for the establishment of the fund. And that was done on the first day. So the first day of the COP, they had a great success. And it did actually kind of give a lot of um, energy to the COP that that was established. And over $700 million um, was um uh, committed by the end of the COP. The COP itself had really a couple of focuses that it needed to do. The main one was the global stock take. Would we get um, a really strong global stock take, which would deal with an issue such as the phasing out or the phasing down of fossil fuels? In the end, we didn't get that language, but we actually, I would argue, got better language because it was transitioned from uh, fossil fuels. And that agreement was to some extent due to the work of John Kerry, um, who with the um, the COP presidency went in and persuaded Saudi Arabia to accept that text. And why is that a good set of terms? It's the terms that the finance sector use. And so it plays into supporting a transition away from fossil fuels in the finance sector. And I think that was a good decision. One of the other things that they had to deal with was Article 6, which deals with the carbon markets. And they dealt with some of it, but not all of it. So we still have a little bit of that to be looking forward to at COP29. And that will be coming up next year. So where, where will we won't go into them, but where will the next one or well, two? Well, no, no, it's, it's, it's well worth uh, telling the viewers. So COP29 um, will be in Azerbaijan. And the reason for that in part was because um, the decision on where the COP goes um, is related to the five UN regions that uh, are recognized and they basically take it in turn to have it. So this, um, the Dubai uh, conference was due to it being in the Asian region. Um, the Sharm el-Sheikh was because it was in the African region and it was now the turn of Eastern Europe to host it. And Russia um, would not allow an Eastern European country that was a member of um, the European Union to host it. So it became a battle between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And as you know, there's been a war between these two countries uh, for the last, I don't know, 20 years. And there was a ceasefire agreed in September. And the deal for 
Armenia to withdraw from hosting it uh, was that, in fact, um, Azerbaijan would release 32 um, captured Armenian service people and then uh, <clears throat> Armenia would withdraw their uh, request to host the summit and it will go to Azerbaijan and that was a kind of deal done probably with the work of Russia and Turkey behind the scenes to to have that happen. There are always backroom negotiations it seems like on everything we do in this world and and every deal I guess put it mildly well we could spend an hour or two or three but in a minute or two or three uh, talk a little bit about being at this conference, it's, this has been, I think, one of the largest conferences I've read where they had over 75,000 people. There were more fossil fuel industries represented at this conference, which is a little bit strange, but or maybe it wasn't. I don't know. We'll see how that comes out. But uh, talk about how it feels when you're in a, in an environment with that many people. Um, it didn't seem that many, except when we were trying to get into the conference each day, when it, the, the lines were very long. Uh, and I have to say, um, you know, we were dealing with a conference venue that had been built for the expo. And so it actually was tailored to get people through quickly, but there was a lot of people who wanted to get in. And so you had to try and get there earlier than you would have wanted to, um, so that you would get in um with enough time to get to your venues and things like that i think that um it, it is always difficult to kind of explain to people what um a cop is like and one this size perhaps even more difficult but you know you have a relatively small number of people dealing with the negotiations but then you have a lot of people who are dealing with um, going to events and these events are either formal ones or they're because different organizations have set up pavilions so you would have a water pavilion you would have an agriculture pavilion you'd have country pavilions and in each of those every day there's events happening uh, they had the first um, faith pavilion this time and so there was real opportunities to share good practice to listen to great speakers. Uh, we had at the Arizona Pavilion, uh, Joachim Rockström, uh, the great uh, thinker behind the nine planetary boundaries uh, as one of our speakers. So it's a very much an ideas fest as well and an opportunity to build partnerships and campaigns. Now, you mentioned the fossil fuel industry was there. Yes, of course they were. But industry's always been part of the climate process and pretty much all of the other environmental processes. They're one of the nine major groups that were recognized in the Rio Earth Summit. And uh, the amount of them was larger because it was being held in a region which is an OPEC region. So I'm not surprised there were a lot of people, but there were a lot, of, lot more people arguing for better deals than uh, the fossil fuel industry was. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Let's hope <laughs> that they prevailed and we'll find out as we go through the program. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or community access television station, or a university or some type of educational system that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, you just have a computer, you like our shows and you would like to share them, 
please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we are taking a look at the COP28 United Nations Conference that just recently concluded in Dubai. My guest is an expert who attended this conference. Mr. Felix Dodds is the Director of the Multilateral Affairs, the Rob and Melanie Walton Sustainability Solutions Service at Arizona State University. Felix, we were talking about the COP conference and the fossil fuel industry participation. The chair, the, uh, the director of that, or the president, I guess, of it, uh, he received a lot of publicity too. Who was the, the chair who headed it up and why did he receive so much publicity? Well, uh, so it's the president more than the chair. That's the term. That you know. okay. Yeah, it's um, Dr. Uh, Sultan Jabir, and he had criticism, as did uh, the United Arab Emirates for sh for hosting on the basis that they were a petrol uh, state. They 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 most of their income comes from um, from oil and gas. Uh, but you know they're not um, the only one. The UK was also a uh, in a similar place where we, we export uh, oil and gas from the, the North Sea. And our minister was the business minister, and he also dealt with energy. So he was no different than uh, the one that we had uh, for Dubai or for, for the Dubai summit. Uh, but it, uh, but um, Dr. Jabbar was also, is also um, the person behind uh, the Mazrak Center, which does um, a huge amount of renewable energy. And in the run-up to um, uh, to the COP, we saw um, the, the the what's now the world's largest single-site solar farm, powering two hundred thousand homes, come on site, uh, become uh, live due to. Uh, the work of uh, the Mazdar Center. So, you know, he was promoting renewables and he was also uh, clearly, um, because of his position, you know, still uh, an oil and gas person. And perhaps it's a bit like a Nixon position, which is, if you remember, uh, the Republican uh, president um, recognized China. Um, it would have been very difficult for a democratic president to recognize China and to get for the first time in any text the idea of a transition away from fossil fuels. Perhaps you needed someone who was a fossil fuel producer to perhaps get that uh, breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And we're certainly going to need that because the time, it seems, is running out and we need to move more quickly. Well, let me ask you, you've attended three COP conferences already. And you've written books on climate change. You're an expert on this topic. Do you feel we're moving in the right direction? And what can we do to move more quickly to achieve our goals so that we don't see the melting of glaciers and the rising of sea levels and the deterioration of the, the reefs and the oceans and those types of things? So um, we are doing better than perhaps uh, people are aware of. Uh, there's always a lag between, you know, the reporting of progress and the um, realization that we've, we've, we've made some movements in the right direction. One of the breakthroughs that happened in the, um, the Glasgow, the Glasgow um, COP, COP26, was that countries recognized that to get consensus, to get everybody to agree to 
everything was a drag on the system, uh, a drag on getting things done. And so they created this coalitions of the willing, those countries that wanted to move forward and wanted to do it quickly so that uh, they could, in a sense, um, yeah, get the discussions and the actions um, on particular issues, um, you know, active and then probably bring it into the formal negotiations. And so a great example of that is on methane. So there was a methane pledge made um, to reduce uh, by 30% methane on 2020 levels by 2030 um, at the Glasgow uh, COP. And that process is moving forward and it will bring down climate change projections by 0.2 degrees centigrade if it's delivered. So that's not an insignificant uh, thing to happen. The other very uh, volatile uh, and highly um, problematic gases uh, is uh, nitrogen. And so that process is also being looked at. Uh, there was this target set in the Convention on Biological Diversity to reduce nitrogen waste by 50% by 2030. So these things are moving. Um, the I think the real... Um, shall we say the stock take showed that we hadn't done well in the past the next time we set the national determined contributions will be at the brazilian cop um in two years time and if those targets do not bring us back under 1.5 degrees then we're clearly on a trajectory to 1.5 to 2 degrees. Um, the stock take was meant to enthuse governments to do the actions that they need to take. And my hope is that that has happened. Then you've also got, I mean, I would mention in the coalitions of the willing, the Glasgow uh, Finance Initiative, which is getting the banks, the pension funds, the insurers uh, to also move away from fossil fuels. So these things, I think, are moments of hope. Mm -hmm. We need hope. <laughs> we certainly do. And we need positive forward action to uh, make sure that we can continue that hope. Well, before we run out of time, I wanted to mention your book, The Heroes in Environmental Diplomacy and Profiles in Courage. And of course, Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres has been sounding the alarm and he said, we've gone beyond climate warming. We're now in the climate boiling uh, and all the sirens are blaring and that type of thing. Uh, who did you or who are a couple of folks she focused on in this book and what did they do to help raise our awareness and to proffer some positive suggestions on what we can do to help? We're never going to defeat climate change, but perhaps slow it down or try to deal with it, to adapt to it, if nothing else. Uh, yeah, the, the Heroes book, uh, as you said, its uh, subtitle is Profiles in Courage, and that's to take up President Kennedy's uh, book on Profiles of Courage, where he looked at eight U.S. senators who showed courage in critical moments in American history uh, in spite of their careers. And if you look at the book that we've done, we looked at about 10 individuals. Who were these people? What did they do in these intergovernmental meetings that was extraordinary? And then what happened to them and the issue afterwards? So for climate change, we looked at three. There are three chapters on climate change. We looked at Ralph Estrada, who was the Argentinian um, 
ambassador to China who chaired the Kyoto Protocol. His government was so unhappy with him after he came back that they demoted him to the driver of the Panama delegation to the next climate meeting. So he had a real reduction in his um, his career, but he came back when the government changed. We looked at President Obama, the um, Copenhagen Accord agreed in 2009. Obama came in for 24 hours and he basically set up what could have been um, a Paris agreement in uh, Copenhagen. Unfortunately, governments were not ready for it. And it took us another six years to agree to that 100 billion and to all countries reporting. So we look at him and what he did. And then finally, we looked at Christina Figueroa, who was the uh, head of the Secretariat for the Paris Conference and how she managed to bring everybody together and her particular leadership skills that got that agreement through. And they all were very, very instrumental and really made tremendous uh, achievements and contributions to this whole discussion. Well, as, as you look at the situation now, what do you perceive as some of our major obstacles in, in moving forward? And to uh, is, what do we need? Do we need more media involvement to help educate the public? Do we need to move more aggressively on trying to transition from fossil fuels to a cleaner type of energy or energy sources? What 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 all do we need? All the above and maybe a lot more? Well, I, I think, you know, in certain cases, because we're now, governments are now introducing climate laws. And in fact, um, the Kenyan government introduced a new climate law in September where it's to deal with issues on the carbon market. And if you lie, you could end up in jail for 10 years. So we need strong regulation at the national level. We need national laws that will hold accountable um, people who say that they're doing carbon offsets or or whatever. We need political will, but we live in a world that, you know, we have the rise of right-wing populism, the war in Europe, the conflict in the Middle East. Those make it very, very difficult. The uh, World Economic Forum um, risk report, global risk report, came out a few days ago. Uh, the number one risk there identifies misinformation and disinformation, and the number two is extreme weather patterns. But if you look at 10 years out, then the top four are all environmental problems. Uh, it's extreme weather at one, it's critical uh, change to the Earth systems two, it's biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse number three, and it's natural resource shortages number four. So we have a big agenda that we need to work together to address. You can do some of that through the formal negotiations, but you can do a lot by coming together for those who want to make change and actually do it through partnerships. It's getting so, almost every show now, we talk about misinformation and disinformation. And of course, two of the ringleaders of this in the United States are Fox and Newsmax, not to mention there aren't a lot more, Breitbart and that whole bunch. But is this prevalent around the world do you have as many i mean you don't you can't take the pulse of every country but are they are they having to deal with all this horrible horrific barrage of misinformation and disinformation we're trying to have a logical discussion of a problem that is a major problem that's going to affect this planet for forever to be quite honest but are these folks from overseas are they being uh, hit with this much 
bad information? Uh, yes, they are. And it'll depend on the national legislation that they have, uh, whether or not they're dealing with it appropriately. The, uh, the British have some good uh, legislation the US used to have. But under Reagan, got rid of that legislation, as I'm sure you'll remember. Um, and that was Pat Buchanan making sure that um, you know Fox could exist and those kinds of things can have an impact um, of putting forward a political agenda that doesn't have to be based on uh, uh, you know on good journalism. It just can be based on someone's opinion. Um, and I think you know there is a uh, there's going to be even more of this because of AI generated misinformation, and so I think there needs to be legislation in countries to strengthen the requirement that um, you get balanced news and that um, wh uh, wherever misinformation is put out, then the uh, broadcaster has to retract that information. Exactly. Well, Felix Dodds, I want to thank you for attending the conference to start off with. And please keep us updated on what's going on, because this is such a major topic. And we really have to work much harder than we have to get it at least a little bit under control. But I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program today. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.